Isn't it exciting how you can take some of the truths of the, of the Bible and of the Scripture and put them to music and really give them a, an emotional experience uh, of what they mean. We've got some outlines. Our outline this morning will be the same as last week. So if you could take that out of your Bibles if you have it. But if you don't have it or you left it at home, feel free to raise your hand. He has some other copies of that outline for you to use this morning. I had an exciting week. I, uh, I finally figured out what uh, Brother Densmore was looking for several weeks ago when he asked me about doing something to help put everything together. And so this week I finally figured it out and got involved in doing it. And I got excited about it and I got involved and I want to tell you a little bit about it so you can look forward to it and so maybe you can pray with me about putting this together. But the uh, statement was that the events of prophecy, as we trace them out, for example, we start at Pentecost, we look to the rapture, and then we define the rapture and the tribulation, the midpoint and the end of the tribulation and the revelation and Armageddon and the second coming and how all these things, how they sit in order is hard for people to grasp sometimes and kind of keep them straight. But what's even more complicated is that all the verses of Scripture which document and set forth these various truths are scattered all through the Bible. They're in Daniel, they're in Isaiah, they're in Revelation, they're in the book of Matthew, uh, they're in the major prophets and the minor prophets, all through the Bible. And Brother Densmore said, well, I wish we could somehow put this together. Well, a few years ago, we took the uh, story of the, the account of the crucifixion and we took all the verses in the Bible and made a, a narrative, a t- uh, historic chronologically narrative and fit all the verses together so you could read it as if it all flowed together. And that's what I got involved in working on this week. And I've got three and a half pages of references so far, and I'm in the middle of it all, and I'm hoping that in the next few weeks I can complete it and we can sit down and read through all the events of prophecy with the various verses taken from all over the Bible weaved together in one narrative. I think that's exciting. I got excited about this week. I tell you, I have some problems sometimes because when I work, I get very intense and uh, my phone will be sitting there and the alarm will go off for my medication and I'll hit the button and say, I'll get that in a minute. And guess what? I start feeling weak about an hour later and I say, boy, this is sure unusual. I can't figure out what's going on here. And I look at my pill box and there are my pills from the last hour that I should have taken. So, uh, but I make it on. God is good and, and I pray that He'll bless this project, and I think it's going to be really exciting to be able to take a narrative and sit down and read it together where we go through all the events of prophecy and have brought together all the verses that describe those things. But this morning we want to talk about another important concept in Scripture and continue our discussion about dispensations. Now I want to review just a little bit for some who may not have been here and for all of us to learn and remember some of these things. Here is a working definition of of dispensationalism or a dispensation. Dispensations are the periods of time following each of the major covenants of the Bible in which men were to live before God in accordance with God, what God commanded in the covenants. 
Uh, We think of it as a period of time because a certain covenant would be delivered by God to His people and then they would live under that stewardship, which we'll talk about in just a moment, for a period of time until the next covenant was given. And then there'd be modifications and changes and additions for the next period of time. So we think of dispensations, practically speaking, as a period of time. But technically in the Bible, it's not the period of time that is the emphasis, it's the stewardship. The stewardship. The stewardship, remember, is the the responsibility of the steward, which is us, in light of what God has revealed in his covenants and directions in the past for individuals in different periods of time. And uh, that stewardship consists of instructions from God on how we're to live, what we're to do, how we're to worship, and, uh, and we're to follow his guidelines and his rules as we are stewards over his house, which is this earth. So stewardships, defined by the previously given major covenants of the Bible, by which men were to live before God. So technically, they're stewardships, they're responsibilities, which God has has defined in all the previous covenants, but that works out to be a particular period of time as well as one covenant follows another. Now, we've talked about the major covenants of the Bible. I wonder if you remember what they are. I want to give you a little bit of drill work here. We want to talk about the covenants and try to remember them so we can recite them. What's the first one? Edenic, the Edenic covenant. My wife has a little uh, embroidered doily that hangs at the door going out to the porch that overlooks her water garden, and it says, time began in a garden. Well, that's not exactly true, but it's a nice thought. Help you remember, Eden. Eden for the Edenic. That's where it comes from, the Garden of Eden. It was given to Adam in particular, and Adam and Eve together in the Garden of Eden. It is the Edenic Covenant. Well, when the Edenic Covenant was violated by Adam, God sent a curse, didn't he? And that wasn't called a covenant. It was a curse, but it was, ty- it was like a covenant in its stipulations. And we call that the Adamic covenant. The Adamic covenant put a curse on creation because of man's sin. And uh, things became very, very bad in this dispensation after the, Abraham- the Adamic covenant, which we call the dispensation of human conscience, okay? And it lasts, as a matter of fact, if you look at your notes, uh, over 1,600 years, I think. But man went down, 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 down into the pit. And remember, Satan got involved and things got so bad that there was a question as to whether the race would even continue. And God intervened and he found one man and one man that he could trust to take his family and be faithful to him. And that man's name was... Noah, and that was what covenant did he get after the great deluge? Noah covenant. Noah covenant gave some guidelines to change things from what they had been before the flood in terms of how men lived with one another. And we'll be talking about that. But shortly after that, as far as Scripture is concerned, in chapter 12 of Genesis, we have another great man of Scripture who arose, and his name was And the covenant God gave to him was the Abrahamic covenant. The Abrahamic covenant was a little bit different in that it took a particular person and gave an instruction or a stewardship to that person and his family to follow. 
Although there was also in midst of that a commission to the rest of the world because he said in that one, bless, I will bless those who bless thee and curse those that curse thee. So there was a little stipulation that went beyond Abraham there. But that was the Abrahamic covenant. Well, the Abrahamic covenant was a promise by God for a nation, a land, and a people. And as time went by, the descendants of Abraham left that area of the world, and they went down south to a nation by the name of... Where'd they go? Egypt. Egypt. And they eventually found themselves in bondage there. And then God appeared to a man who was born and put into a... Uh, bush uh, a a a what was it bulrush that's where he went bulrush basket and floated on the nile river and his name was moses and it was what covenant mosaic covenant and that was quite a long period of time as well but then there finally came just some 2000 some years ago uh, a babe who was born in bethlehem and he grew up and he died on a cross and shed his blood for all mankind. And the night before he died on the cross, he instituted a covenant that was, uh, became effective on the day of Pentecost. And what was that covenant? The new covenant. We call it the new covenant. Well, then there is another covenant. And this covenant is yet future, isn't it? And we read about it in Jeremiah chapters 31 and 33. It is a covenant, again, particularly focused on the nation of Israel. And what does Scripture call that covenant? Scripture calls it the new covenant. But in order to clarify the, the distinction from this new covenant, we sometimes call it the kingdom covenant or the millennial covenant. So we have the kingdom covenant. The new covenant, actually, that Christ instituted for the formation of the church directed specifically at the nation of Israel after their blindness is removed at the beginning of the tribulation period. And then, of course, we had those minor covenants, the land covenant, the Davidic covenant, which are really extensions of the Abrahamic covenant, and we're not going to spend much time with them. Well, I tell you, let's try that again, okay, a little bit more quickly this time. What was the first covenant? Edenic, the second Again, Adamic. Third, Noahic. Fourth, Abrahamic. Fifth, say it again, Mosaic, okay? And next, New Covenant, and then the Kingdom Covenant and the Minor Covenants which follow. Now, just as review briefly, uh, sometimes living conditions on earth and often man's focus in life and guidelines for living as he served God were changed by the Lord from dispensation to dispensation. For example, from the dispensation of the uh, innocence, the, the Edenic covenant, to the Adamic covenant, the great curse that was put on the earth largely affected the animal kingdom, didn't it? Because the animal kingdom, which he had dominion over, was cursed. And as we look on at the cry of Lamech for comfort and the Noahic covenant, which put the fear of animals, the fear of man and animals, we find out that there must have been some very, very difficult animals during that period of time. And we find that frequently, that when man is in rebellion against God, the animal kingdom reflects that. So uh, from the time of Eden to the time of 
conscience in that period, the animal kingdom drastically changed. That's what we mean by living conditions. Also, the earth brought up thorns and thistles that were not like thorns and thistles we have today, but monstrous problems for Adam as he tried to till the ground and get something out of it to eat. And so that's what we mean by living conditions sometimes changing, not always. They changed after the Adamic covenant, after the Noahic covenant, and they will change again after the covenant of grace or the church covenant. Also, the focus of life. Uh, the saints of Abraham's time focused on an altar with a sacrifice given to God. The saints of David's time focused on a temple with sacrifice in the temple. And we today focus on our Savior who sits at the right hand of the Father in heaven. So these different periods of time and dispensations speak of a different focus in life and different guidelines for life. In David's day, they lived according to the law. They followed the procedures of sacrifice and sanctification. But today, the law has been set aside, and we worship the Lord Jesus Christ and are, in fact, the temples of God ourselves, individually, and also as a church. And so, uh, the way we lived and served God and the conditions have changed from time to time. But, but what? The plan of salvation, the way of salvation is always the same in every dispensation. By grace through faith. By men believing or trusting in the revelation God had given to them. Now we understand that people of ancient times before the birth of Christ, the death of Christ, did not know about Jesus Christ and His coming on the cross, but there was in their revelation it various points, uh, indicators and prophecies and shadows and portrayals of his coming. His presence is very real in Revelation before he actually came to this earth, but it is never completely clear until he actually appeared. Uh, Charles Ryrie, who's a noted theologian in premillennial circles, described it like this, and I think this was written very well. My resident theologian came up with this for me, and I appreciate that very much. The basis of salvation, quoting Ryrie, the basis of salvation is always the death of Christ. The basis of salvation. The means is always faith. The object is always God, though man's understanding of God before and after the incarnation is obviously different. But the content of faith depends on the particular revelation God was pleased to give at a certain time. These are the distinctions which the dispensationalist recognizes, and they are distinctions necessitated by the plain interpretation of revelation as it was given. Just again, the basis of salvation is what? The death of Christ. The means of salvation is faith. And the object of salvation is God. But the amount of total understanding of God's plan varied from time to time depending on how much revelation men had. We want to be sure we understand that. And we want to understand, too, that God revealed himself to us through progressive revelation. Progressive revelation. He didn't give the entire Bible at one time. He gave a certain portion of it to Moses and a certain portion of it to Joshua, a certain portion of it to Samuel and many, many others as we come down through the annals of biblical time. And so he released it in sections or units. 
Not only that, but if you take one individual section, like, for example, the Pentateuch, the book of Genesis and Numbers, which are the primary historical books there, you find that even within the book, God gave bits and pieces and kept building on the foundation from what he had revealed before so that uh, men could absorb it and think about it. And the dispensations are the same thing. As we look at the dispensation of the Edenic Covenant, it's very simple. One command. Don't eat of that tree. But when we go down the road a little bit to the law, we find chapters devoted to instruction about what God wants man to do and how he wants him to live and what his holy standard demands. And there's a progress of revelation there. And the dispensations aid in teaching finite sinful men about a holy, infinite, transcendent God. You know, that's, that's quite a... That's quite a task for an infinite, holy God to reveal himself fully to a finite, sinful man. But he loved each of us so much that through this wonderful, amazing program, he has sought to reach out to us and show us the way of salvation and the way to live in the world in which we find ourselves. Eternal lessons are taught through dispensations. Watch this. God in all times desires fellowship with men. He walked in the garden with Adam. After the curse on Adam, he left man alone for a while. He desired to be with him, but he knew man had to learn some lessons. He had to learn some lessons about how wicked he was. So he let man go. And when man fell into the deepest of depths, he came by and found a man named Noah who he could have fellowship with and he used him to bring about the flood. And if you trace it through, you'll find in every dispensation God desires to have fellowship with men. You'll find that God's holy standards cannot be compromised. He uh, set a standard in the garden that was violated and there was a curse that followed. He left man to himself to determine how to live according to God's right and wrong, but instead he made up his own right and wrong. And, and, and it goes on and on and on. But God's holy standards cannot be compromised. Blood sacrifice is essential for the remission of sin in every dispensation, every period of time. Starting back at Eden with the sacrifice that God made when he butchered or he he sacrificed the animals with which he clothed Adam and Eve. And then following through with the sacrifices given there at the door of Eden by his descendants and on down through history. Blood sacrifice is essential for remission of sin. You know, to the modern world, that statement is heathenism. It's out of date. It's archaic. They don't like to talk about blood sacrifice. But God said without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. The shedding of blood which was required, not only the death of the Savior, but the shedding of his blood was required for our sins to be forgiven. And that is held true throughout the Scriptures. Finally, Christ offered the ultimate blood sacrifice. Animal sacrifices are temporal and incomplete. But the sacrifice of Christ is total, complete, infinite and offers to every one of you 
and everyone that shall ever come into the world by birth, though a sinner, it offers salvation through his shed blood. Now, we want to look at the dispensations and, and find that together, the dispensations demonstrate that not only Christ's sacrifice, that only Christ's sacrifice and shed blood make possible the redemption of men. And when we get done with this study, we're going to be able to take each dispensation and say, this dispensation says this about our approach to God and salvation, and this one says that, and the next one says another. And each one of them shows, each one is set up to show that one of the major excuses that people use today to avoid accepting Christ and repenting of their sins are all impossible solutions to their sin problem. And we'll see that as we bring things together at the end of the study. So we want to begin by looking at the Edenic Covenant. The Edenic Covenant. Now we've emphasized this morning the uh, names of the covenants, and we've had you recite those. Now you've got another name to learn, the name of the dispensations that go with the covenants. So we have the Edenic Covenant, and the name of the dispensation that goes with the Edenic Covenant is the dispensation of innocence. Innocence. Uh, We'll talk about that a little bit more in a minute. But take your Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. Now, when we open the book of Genesis chapters 1 and 2, uh, we, we realize right away that chapter 1 is an overview and chapter 2 is a backwards look with more reflection into God's creation of the world. Liberals like to explain that in a different way by saying there's different traditions that somebody is trying to weave together. But that is not true. It is not a tradition or a, a myth that somebody's trying to weave together. It is the Word of God given to the people of that day, which was Adam and Eve. So looking at chapter 1, verse 28, we read this. And God blessed them, so it's Adam and Eve, and God said unto them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and replenish the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every herb-bearing seed which is upon the face of all the earth, and every tree in which is the fruit of a tree-yielding seed, to you it shall be for meat." And to every beast of the earth, and to every fowl of the air, and to everything that creepeth upon the earth, wherein there is life, I have given every green herb for meat. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And the evening and the morning were the sixth day. And then we go across the page to chapter 2, verse 15. And we find this additional information about God's instruction here in the Garden of Eden. And the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. Now you might notice over in verse 8 it says, And the Lord God planted a garden eastward of Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. Uh, that he, he, he formed the man in the earth, but then after he formed him, he made a special place for him to live. The Garden of Eden was a very special place that God created for Adam to live and then for Eve to live with him. And so he put them in the garden. And it says he put 
him into the Garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. This is a covenant or instructions, if you want to be more precise, that God gave to Adam and Eve there in the Garden of Eden. It is universal because it applies to them and all of their descendants. And it is unconditional. There's no if clause here. Uh, it's no if, if this you may eat of the tree or if that you may not eat. No, it's universal and it's unconditional. And uh, the test here suggests that the man has to be proven. As we look at this text, we find a little bit later in chapter 3, after the man has fallen, that the uh, Lord came to the garden to walk in the garden in the cool of the day. And the understanding we have there is that God would actually walk with Adam in the garden at various times, which demonstrates the fact, since God is holy, that Adam had to have a, a holiness about him or he would not have been able to walk with God in the garden. But the fact that God put before him this test demonstrated that his holiness was unconfirmed. And it needed to be confirmed. Now, what would have happened had it been confirmed? I don't want to go down all the if paths, but it would have been a very wonderful future for Adam and for the race. God gave Adam the independent option of deciding who he wanted to follow. God or his own preferences. He gave him a free will. And man chose to follow his own preferences. Now, this uh, event that we read about here, <laughs> frankly, is a chapter, a couple of chapters of great disdain for our modern world. To think of an idea such as this, that there be some relevance in this to us today, this instruction and this event there in Eden is the foundation of our society today. There is laid down in these instructions and the events that take place here an explanation of how we got to where we are today. And, and there are lessons that are very appropriate and very important for us to understand especially as we face an election booth in the next few weeks. Not to talk about one candidate or the other, but to talk about timeless principles that have been established in the Word of God, but they're being neglected, stampeded, and ridiculed in our modern world and in the political world in particular, which has control over our country. Uh, look carefully at the instructions that were given. He was to propagate the race. They were to give birth, be fruitful, be multiply, and fill the earth. They were to subdue earth for mankind. He was to have dominion over all the animals that God had created. He was to care for the garden. And he was to eat of all the trees in the garden except this one. It's interesting as you look here at this first this first uh, chapter 1, look back at chapter 1, verse 29. And God said, Behold, I have given you every herb-bearing seed which is upon the face of all the earth and every tree in which is fruit 
of a tree yielding seed that it shall be for meat, with one exception. Uh, it's emphasized here how much God gave them and how little he was withholding from them. But Satan turns that around, and he tries to make it look like God is stingy and that man should be entitled to a more generous share. And with that deception, man violates God's principle. He is to care for the garden and eat thereof. He is to abstain from one tree. So basically we have five simple thoughts here. Propagate the race, subdue the earth for man, dominion over the animals, care for the garden and eat thereof, and abstain from this one tree. Well, we look at this in a little more detail, and we, we want to look at some comparative points from each dispensation somewhat or somewhat parallel. So first of all, the, the condition of man. He's in unconfirmed holiness. Some, some, innocence is a nice-sounding name. Innocence not really quite what describes Adam in this situation, but uh, we use that term. It's a term that's commonly familiar to everybody. But for, frankly, he was in a state of unconfirmed holiness, and God gave him a test. Now, his responsibility was to obey God and follow the test and not eat of the tree of knowledge which God had put there in the garden. But he failed in that responsibility, and he ate of the tree and violated God's standard. That failure was historic. In other words, it was a historical part of a historical record that happened at a particular point in time. And it was also literal. Everybody likes to take these early chapters and give them symbolic meaning. And in fact, uh, many call them an a origins myth to discredit them. But these are literal events. And I want to say to you today that contrary to what many have thought in their shallow understanding of uh, faith and theology and religion, that the whole gospel stands and falls upon whether you believe that Adam and Eve were real people who did these real things. Because when we get to the New Testament, number one, Jesus Christ, our Savior, truth incarnate, endorses the idea that these were literal people that lived in history. So if they weren't, if it was just a creation myth, then Jesus Christ either misunderstands or is a liar, and that totally destroys his credibility for who God is. And secondly, the salvation plan is explained through these events. But as we look at these events, we find that not only Jesus Christ, but others in the New Testament considered them as a literal historical event. In Romans chapter 5, verse 12, Paul writes, By one man, sin entered into the world. One man. In 2 Corinthians eleven three, Paul again writes, But I fear, lest by any means, as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. And again, the Gospels, the Lord Jesus Christ said, And he answered and said unto them, Have ye not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female? We'll come back to that. 1 Timothy 2.14, And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. And so then there came... God's judgment. 
the curse, and they were cast out of the garden. Turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3, and let's look shortly at a couple of these verses. Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse 22. And the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become as one of us to know good and evil. And now, lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life, and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him forth from the garden of Eden to till the ground from whence he was taken. So he drove out the man, and he placed at the east of the garden of Eden cherry beams and a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. And that's not totally complete because the rest of the story turned the page is over in chapter 5. Look at chapter 5. This is the book of the generations of Adam. And here's how it reads. Male and female created he them and blessed them and called their name Adam in the day where they were created. And Adam lived 130 years and begat a son of his own likeness after his image and called his name Seth. And the days of Adam after he had begotten Seth were 800 years, quite a long time, and begot sons and daughters. And all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. And you keep reading through this genealogy, and it's kind of strange. Everybody dies. Everybody dies because of the curse of sin. By the way, there's one light breather in the midst of all that in verse 21. An individual who walked with God and was raptured out of this death cycle. Well, we'll talk more about that another time. But the curse came upon, upon Adam, upon creation, because of Adam's sin. Now, uh, we have a, a name for that. We'll talk about that in a minute here. But let's, let's talk for a minute about how we can apply some of the truths of the dispensation of innocence based on the covenant, the Edenic covenant. When you look at this story, this account, I hesitate to call it a story. I want to call it a story because it has a storyline. But stories are usually associated with untrue events, and history is associated with true events. So sometimes I slip and call it a story, but actually it's a historical record. This historical record <clears throat> explains to us how we became sinners. There are different theories about how Adam represented the race. Some people considered him uh, a symbolic representative of the whole race. But more probable in conjunction with Revelation and the arguments of Roman, we are sinners simply because we are the biological and thereby spiritual children of Adam who sinned and lost his status before God and became a compulsive, depraved sinner. You say, well, that's not fair. Well, you may not think it's fair that your nose is crooked, and you may not think it's fair that your eyes don't work right and blame your parents, but that's the way it is. One of my grandchildren the other day, he's been having trouble with uh, ingrown toenails. And he says, you know, Grandpa, that's hereditary. I said, oh, you're trying to blame me for your ingrown toenail, are you? Well, whether we like it or not, some things are hereditary, and our spiritual condition is hereditary. And we inherited from Adam a sin nature, and we pass it on to our children. The Bible talks about our sinfulness. Look at 
Uh, Psalm 58, if you would with me. Psalm 58, verse 3. Psalm 58, verse 3. The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray as soon as they are be born, speaking lies. Well, they obviously don't speak with words, but even in their composure, they speak lies. It's amazing. I mean, for a baby, everything is me, 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 my world. There's no conception or understanding of mama may be tired or may have been up all night. It's me, 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 me first, okay? And that develops uh, into more serious issues unless parents learn with wisdom how to discipline and bring up their children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. So here is the account of how we became sinners. Here is the reality, the teaching. By the way, if you don't think it's fair that you're a sinner because you were born to uh, the race of Adam, then remember this. Adam was the father of the race of sinners, but Jesus Christ is the Savior of any who will come to him. You are under the curse of Adam and the sin nature problem because of your hereditary but you are offered a free gift which you can receive with no, with no cost. The shed blood of Jesus Christ to save you from your sins. The book of Romans talks about this a great deal in chapter 5 when it points out, you know, the sin of Adam may, it may be something that is a curse to you, but, but the blessing of Jesus Christ who died for the whole world is much greater than what happened in Adam. Because the whole world can receive a divine future living with God because He has given His life for our sins. We are born separated from God. So we understand from this text over 4,000 years ago why we have a, a, a tendency, a, a, a direction toward doing the wrong thing that brings trouble into our lives like it brought trouble into Adam's life. We also learn from this account about marriage. God brought together the man and the woman. Perhaps before we go to marriage, we should talk about gender or sexual, or sexual reality, I guess you'd say. I don't know how all the terms fit together they use today. But twice here, it says he created them male and female. Uh, first of all, it's demonstrated in the creation account where he creates a helper for Adam, which is created separate from Adam, but from Adam. And then in chapter 5, where we just read, we read about he made them male and female. And then we go to the New Testament, where Jesus quoted this text. He refers to God as having made them male and female. Uh, whether you're a man or a woman is not a matter of social decision. It's not a matter of your choice. It's a matter of the way God created you. And the Bible indicates here that he created male and female. And it's embedded in your physiology. I'm not a physiologist or a medical doctor. But I understand that there's an X chromosome and a Y chromosome. And if you're a guy, you're what, what, which is which? Is X meant whichever. Uh, Throughout your whole body and all the cells of your body, there is a testimony as to whether God created you in the womb as a man or as a woman. That is not a social option. As you think about the election coming up, I would say to you, uh, not what candidates you should vote for, 
but to understand that this event over 4,000 years ago set some ground rules, and if an individual does not take a political position that represents and reinforces these ground rules, then you should be voting for that individual. You should be voting for an individual who, who will stand for and who will bring into being principles of Scripture that are timeless. And these are things that are being challenged in our day that are timeless, that go back 4,000 years ago and have been accepted by societies down through history with the exception of debauched, depraved societies that went off the deep end just like ours is headed. But by peoples and societies through the centuries, they've been accepted. And today they're being questioned. And we wonder why there's such violent reaction, why there's such great, loud, heated debate and interruption. It is because we're no longer arguing about policies. We're arguing about the basic ethical principles that we have been created to uphold and withstand. And there can be no compromise in those areas, like there can be in areas of policy or implementation. The Bible teaches us in the Garden of Eden that men were made men and women were made women, and that marriage is between one man and one woman. It is, mono it is monogamous, it is sexually exclusive, and it is permanent. The one flesh, when you work out the description of the significance of that phrase, teaches us that truth. Monogamous, sexually exclusive, permanent marriage. And uh, it also teaches us that there is one race. You go and fill out an application uh, anywhere and they'll ask you what race you are. I, I know one individual who puts down human. <laughs> and that's good. We are different ethnicities, but we're all the same race. If we could somehow graft that into our teaching and understanding, it would solve a lot of our our, our uh, problems in race discrimination. We're all the same race. We all came from Adam and Eve. And as we get along here a little bit, we'll begin to understand what that's all about. We are one race. And we are created male and female. The uh, other consideration as we look at this text is that to believe this text is to totally deny the theory of evolution. The theory of evolution, of course, you're familiar with, says that we uh, developed from some lower form into some higher form. Uh, a, total, a total disaster, even logically, that individuals could change from something simple to something that's much more complex without the intervention of some kind of a, a, a greater being. And, of course, we know that greater being was God, and he intervened from the very beginning, not in the midst of the process. And he designed a man who was extremely complex. Wow, you get into the physiology that studies these days. It's amazing how complex mankind is. And, in fact, he's not becoming more complicated. He's becoming uh, diseased and breaking down because of the sin curse on the creation and when we understand that, we understand our need to depend upon God. Evolution is a lie of the devil to take away the truths of the Garden of Eden and to put us into a world of misrepresentation, lies, failure, and eventual destruction. Over 4,000 years ago this took place. 
And yet, the principles that were set down and established in the Garden of Eden are timeless. And we need to understand them today. Well, let's move on and look at the Adamic Covenant. Genesis chapter 3. The Adamic Covenant is associated with the dispensation of conscience. Conscience. Why is that? Well, turn in your Bibles to chapter 3 and 4. In chapter 3, verse 5, the serpent, dwelled by Satan, says to Eve, For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. That's Satan's words, okay? It may be the only true thing he said. Because if you turn the page and look at verse 22 of chapter 3, we find that God says this, Behold, the man has become as one of us to know good and evil. What's the point? Satan said you'll be as gods, or you'll be as God. You can translate it that way. The Elohim is in the plural for our, our God too. You'll be as God. In other words, you will make up your own mind about what's right and wrong. Our God sets the standard for what's right. It's an absolute holy standard. And he was asking Adam to voluntarily submit himself to that standard. And let God decide, let Jehovah decide what is right and what is wrong. But, uh, but Satan said, you know, you can take this matter into your own hand and, and, and don't get, get out from under his, his standards here. And be, have, be your own, have your own standards. You decide for yourself what's good and what's right and what's wrong. Instead of following him. And then you'll be a God just like he is. Which is really insightful because the truth of the matter is, if you disregard God's word and God's commands, you essentially are putting him aside and putting yourself in, in his place. You're saying, I'll, I'll make the decisions about what's right and wrong. God, you just go have a party somewhere else. Um, that's the idea here. Well, the curse here is universal. The serpent, the serpent is Satan's tool, and he's cursed for being that. But interestingly enough, in this very first desperate situation that comes upon mankind, there is a glimmer of light. In chapter 3, verse 15, God says, And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. That is a prophecy, seed of the woman, speaking of a virgin-born child. And he will bruise the head, which is Christ. He was not crushed, but bruised. He was not, uh, he died, but he was not, uh, his, he was not terminated from his, his life. He was resurrected. And yet he would destroy Satan. Well, that was a promise that began called the Proto-Evangelium, 
which is proto-first evangelistic message of the Bible. So way back when Moses wrote this, in about 1445 B.C., or maybe a little earlier, we have the first shadow of a coming Messiah. And those who would know God would believe in his word through this. Well, I want to take a moment to go back and just read this covenant, this curse, beginning in chapter 3, verse 14. We don't want to neglect just the plain reading of the Word of God. So look there with me, chapter 3, verse 14. And the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle. Notice it says above all cattle. The cattle are cursed too. And above every beast of the field, upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Unto the woman he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. And to Adam he said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it. Cursed is the ground. For thy sake, in sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread, till thou return unto the ground. For out of it wast thou taken, for dust thou art, and into dust thou shalt return. And Adam called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. Unto Adam also and to his wife did the Lord God make coats of skins and clothe them. And the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become as one of us, to know good and evil. And now, lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him forth from the garden of Eden to till the ground from whence he was taken. So he drove out the man, and he placed at the east of the garden of Eden cherubims and a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. It's interesting here that it makes the statement, multiplied conception. Multiplied conception. In other words, her potential to conceive was going to be greater than it currently was. That's it's something to give a little bit of thought to. You know, I heard a sermon one time, not, it's been many, many years ago, the sermon was entitled, Babies Are a Blessing. Babies Are a Blessing. Have you heard that sermon? Really? I thought maybe some of you would. Uh, babies Are a Blessing. And this preacher went through the Bible and showed how much God loves life. He created life everywhere. If you look at the creation account here, he created fishes swarming and birds flying. And you look at nature around us and if you even go out into the deserts, you find cactus and you find microbes that live in the most severe conditions, even, I believe, in some of the cold regions of the earth. God is pro-life. I mean pro-life. He wants a multiplication. He wants life to flourish on the earth. And you notice man is trying to do just the opposite. We'll see a little bit later that God promises that he will take care of things for us. Our job is to obey him, and part of that job is to multiply and fill the earth. 
As a matter of fact, that statement which is here in Genesis is repeated in the Noahic Covenant twice. It is a foundational principle that is established in Eden and carried through all time. And the multiplying of the woman's conception is not so much a curse as a wonderful blessing because God wants to see the earth filled with people who trust him and come to know Jesus as a Savior. In fact, if you read John, or first, uh, first Timothy, well, let me, let me go on at this point. There's a text in 1 Timothy that's always puzzling to people, and that text says this, 1 Timothy 2.15, Notwithstanding, she shall be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith and charity and holiness with sobriety. Notwithstanding, she shall be saved in childbearing, speaking of the woman. Now, there's a couple of different interpretations to this. One is, of course, that the childbearing is the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ who comes and takes on human form and dies for all mankind. But the one that I think is more appropriate is that God has created women in such a way that they're designed to raise children and multiply in the earth. Now, there are exceptions sometimes when God, for his own purposes and reasons, withholds conception. But his general rule is that he will provide for all that he gives us. And here, here it's saying that the woman who could get involved in a lot of things that maybe she shouldn't be involved in finds her place, her place of authority, her place of service, her place of fulfillment in the home with children. Notwithstanding, she shall be saved. In other words, she shall saved not here in the sense of saved from sin to go to heaven, but saved from uh, things in her life that aren't pleasing to God. She'll be saved from that in childbearing if they continue in faith and charity and holiness of sobriety. Some real serious thoughts there for you that are married and have children and maybe are thinking about marriage. Secondly, he says sorrow and pain in motherhood. Well, that's true, but you know what John said, chapter 16, verse 21, the New Testament says, A woman, when she is in travail, has sorrow, because her hour has come. But as soon as she is delivered of the child, she remembereth no more the anguish for joy that a man is born into the world. And then again in Isaiah 53, it uh, speaks, it, it parallels this, it takes the birth process, which speaks of the sorrow, and shows that it's a picture of what Jesus does when he saves men. It says in Isaiah 53, 10 and 11, When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall see of the travail of his soul, and shall be satisfied. That's speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ. The uh, woman is also cursed in the sense of the headship of a depraved man. And... We as men need to understand how important it is that we develop spiritually and treat our wives with the love and reverence that the Lord Jesus Christ would. Well, we're going to stop there. I hate stopping in the middle of one of the covenants, but we're going to do that. We're going to mind the clock more than the, the text here, and we'll pick up there next time. But uh, there's a lot of truths here that we need to dwell upon, and I, I just if, if there's someone here that has any doubt that these accounts that we're reading are literal historical accounts 
You need to come to your mom and dad or to pastor and myself. We need to talk about that. These truths are foundational to God's working in our lives and the truths of Scripture and salvation. And the second thing I'd like to challenge you about is we're looking forward to election here shortly. And we've looked at some subjects. Uh, we could probably have developed some others from these particular events that are very foundational in the Word of God. And we could develop them beyond the Garden of Eden up into texts throughout the Scriptures. And I'd like to challenge yourself to commit yourself to being wise in the privilege that's been given to you to vote and express your convictions through the ballot booth, to take advantage of that. Be sure you're there on a voting day. And, I, and I'm, I'm encouraging you to vote for candidates who will uphold these foundational truths that are found in the Word of God. And may we take it upon ourselves as we close today, too, to prove, uh, pray for individuals that uh, people who uh, have grown weak through the media and the bombardment of false truths would see the truth of their faith that many claim to hold but do not express in the ballot box or anywhere else. So let's take these things to the Lord, examine ourselves as we do. Father in heaven, thank you so much for these portions of Scripture. Lord, uh, they explain in a very simple, straightforward, easy-to-understand way how the race is what it is today in many respects. And as we go through these early periods of covenants and dispensations, we're going to see again and again the development of things that are still involved in our lives today. And so we pray, Lord, as we do that, you give us insight and understanding and that we would examine ourselves. Lord, we pray that we might be committed to the truth and reality of these Scripture texts. Uh, many times, Lord, many of us here live in a sheltered environment. We don't realize how adamant and cruel and uh, how disdaining the world can be although we have seen in the lives of various political figures the ridicule and the condemnation and the uh, mistreatment that comes to individuals who take these kinds of stands. So, Lord, we pray for individuals who are standing true to the principles of the Word of God. We pray for the election, Lord, that people will be elected to office who are willing to stand for and uphold principles from Your Word. And we pray You guide us in our support of individuals, in our direction, in our influence, that we might honor God and take His truth seriously in the way we live out our lives. Lord, bless us now as we turn our thoughts in a song of dedication and evaluation and self-scrutiny. Lord, that You would show us anything that You're not pleased with and reinforce in us the truths of Scripture that we might go forth to be a light and a testimony for You. In Jesus' name. Amen.